0: The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, "Are you from Galilee, too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The Word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated last week we read how Jesus stood up in the temple on the last day on that great day, and uncharacteristically he yells out the the word there meaning." screaming out to the top of his lungs, probably at a time when it was very quiet uh, in the temple. And Jesus stands up and yells out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this was a crucial moment in the life of Christ and it was also a crucial moment in the life of Israel. Jesus was clearly and publicly calling everyone to believe in him. This was Israel's moment. At this point they could embrace Jesus as their Messiah and be saved or they could reject Jesus and bring the wrath of God down on themselves. And that was their choice, forgiveness or wrath. And it was their moment to decide. And what's interesting is even today, everyone still has that same choice. That same choice, either forgiveness and salvation or the wrath of God because of our sin. Jesus came to die on the cross for us. Literally, Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself in our place. So either Jesus dies for you or you die for you. Either Jesus suffers under the wrath of God or you suffer under the wrath of God. That is the choice. And so the choice is, even today, come to Christ, believe in him, be forgiven, And be granted as a gift everlasting life, or reject Christ and suffer under the condemnation of your own sins forever. Doesn't seem like much of a choice, does it? It seems like everyone would want to be saved and come to Christ, but that is not the case, unfortunately. So the call of Christ went out to Israel. Just like the call of Christ goes out in his general call to the whole world, come and be saved. And Jesus said this many times in his ministry in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who, you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, Christ says. In Revelation twenty-two, seventeen, 17, at the very end of the book of Revelation, we find not only does the Spirit, the Spirit of God, uh, call people to come but the bride that is the church also calls people to come and the spirit and the bride says in revelation twenty-two, seventeen: 17 come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires to take the water of life without price meaning the grace of God is free it can't be worked for it can't be earned God gives His grace, His salvation for free if people would come to Christ. So coming to Christ is receiving the free gift of eternal life by trusting in Jesus, by believing in Him. And with this free offer, you would think that the whole world would would come. But that's not the case. It's not the case today, and it certainly wasn't the case back in jesus's day and it wasn't true of this day in israel when jesus called the people to come to him so we're going to see in these few verses here the different responses to jesus and and one of the things that we'll see here is that there are similar responses today to jesus and one of the things that we need to take notice of is that jesus wherever he goes back then even today jesus brings division he divides and this may be a little unexpected because isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 said that his name would be called the prince of peace well it's interesting how is it that the prince of peace brings division when the angel came and announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, they, they sang, or they said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Well, how is it that this Messiah, who is to bring peace on earth, brought such division? Why is this so? So we have to balance then Isaiah's prophecy and the angel's announcement uh, that uh, of Jesus being the prince of peace and Jesus bringing peace on earth. We have to balance that to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 34. Jesus said, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting thing to say from the prince of peace. He said, don't think I came to bring peace to the earth. I have, come to bring pe- I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he goes on to explain what he means by that. He says in verse 35, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Interesting. Division. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but he brings a sword of division. How can both of these be true of Jesus? How can he be both the Prince of Peace and one who causes division? Well, we need to understand something about division. Division means that it's not peace at all costs. It's not peace at all costs. It's not peace at the expense of truth. Jesus did not come to bring peace to an earth to a world full of lies. And so, peace based on lies can never last. The sword that Jesus brings into the world that divides is the sword of truth. Later, that is de- is described in Hebrews as the sword of the word of god right that divides joint and marrow that divides the thoughts and intents of our hearts jesus brings the sword of truth and jesus says in john 8:32 and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free so the truth is that there is only one god and anything that you place before God becomes an idol. That's the truth. And yet the world doesn't believe that, do they? They put all kinds of things before God, they put sports before God. Crystal and I, we were in Norman last evening going to the health food store, you know, and we got caught up in the traffic coming out of the OU ball game. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I just kept looking around thinking, "What if all these people went to church? Would that be awesome? You know? And maybe some of them do. And some it doesn't mean that you can't be a Christian and enjoy sports and enjoy OU, but you need to realize that there are some people that have made sports their God. They get more excited about the a touchdown of their team than they do about Jesus Christ and his salvation by grace through faith. Well. If you place sports before God, it's an idol. If you place your children before God, it's an idol. If you place your work before God, it's an idol. And what's the first commandment? Love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The first commandment, that you shall not have any other gods before me. That's number one. And so Jesus came to bring God's truth to the world. And unfortunately, the world doesn't want to hear that truth, and so They reject the truth, and that causes division. God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has told us through his word that we are all sinners in rebellion against God. The truth is that Jesus came to save us. He tells us the truth, that we are all sinners, guilty, deserving of God's condemnation. And the truth is that we can all be saved if we come by faith to Christ, if we believe and repent. So anyone who comes to Christ finds the truth. In fact, truth is not just some kind of a, of a thought, uh, some kind, not kind of an abstract idea. Jesus says that he is the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. Jesus is truth personified and if they believe the truth they will be set free from bondage of sin you will know the truth the truth will set you free and that truth will bring peace peace in your heart toward other christians but particularly peace with god the truth will bring peace and so the lord will not bring peace to this world at the expense of truth. And peace will only come to this world when this world embraces the truth, when this world submits to the lordship of Christ. But since mankind hates God and hates the truth, there will be divisions. That's why there will be divisions even among families because one family member loves the Lord and loves the truth, Another family member hates the Lord, hates the truth, and that will cause division even in one's own household. And this will be true as long as the world embraces lies. Now, the world has all kinds of ideas about God, don't they? A lot of people say there is no God. Other people say there are hundreds of God's. When you look out in the world even today, the lie is that the highest power in the world is the state or government. Well, if there is no God, that has to be the highest power, right? The government. Or there's a lie even among Christians that Christ has no jurisdiction over governments. There's that sacred-secular split that Christians have that Jesus reigns in heaven, but he has nothing to do with anything on this earth. But that's not what Jesus said, is it? Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That means every governor, every president, every ruler of this world is accountable to Christ. But Christians have even bought the lie that Christ has nothing to do with education, that Christ has nothing to do with governance, that Christ has nothing to do with the things of, of this world and And so Christians divide their minds. They give God on, uh, you know, the day on Sunday, and then the rest of the week they give to the world, and they don't see that Christ is Lord over all and every day. Now, so these are many lies that the world believes, and sometimes Christians have even bought into that. And all of these lies are incapable of bringing peace to the world it can only bring division. It only brings bondage and death. And if you haven't figured it out yet, the world hates us for telling them the truth about these things, for pointing this out, for believing these things. They, they hate us for it, just like they hated Jesus. And so with this in mind, let's see how the crowd reacted to Jesus when he stood up and called them to salvation to come to him and we will find that the same reactions that jesus endured are the same kind of reactions that we see in the world today the first thing is in verses 40 and 41 we find that there are those who believed in him 40 and 41 when they heard these words some of the people said this really is the prophet and others said, this is the Christ. And so those who said these things, this really is the prophet. They seemed to be getting it. They believed, at least they were on their way to believing. All week they had been forced to think about the Exodus, about how God delivered Israel out of Egypt and how he covered them with his cloud from the heat of of the desert, how he fed them out in the wilderness and particularly how he gave them water to drink when Moses struck the rock and living water, running water, came out of that rock. And all week long they had been thinking about this. They had been thinking about this water. And that's when Jesus stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so that just reaffirmed to what they had already been thinking about, that Jesus is calling them to drink spiritually, to be satisfied forever spiritually. And so they got the connection. They said, this is the prophet. In other words, this must be the prophet that Moses was talking about. We see this in Deuteronomy 18:15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you for your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's who that's, that's who they were talking about. This is the prophet they said. This is the one Moses was talking about. And so this is an expression of their belief. Others said this is the Christ, meaning the Christ and the prophet were, the, were to be the same person. I know there was a lot of debate whether the prophet was a different person and the Messiah was a different person, but it's the same person. The prophet, the Messiah would be the same person. Others said this is the Christ. He really is the Messiah, they said, after hearing Jesus cry out and call them to come to him. And this was the very profession of faith that Jesus was calling for. Do you remember in verse 12 of chapter 7? I know we've been five weeks or longer in this particular chapter, this section anyway. In verse 12 it says, And there was much muttering about him among the people. So here's what the people said in verse 12. While some said he is a good man, that won't quite get you there, will it? And others said, No, he is leading the people astray. That was what was among the people. In verse 12, but now as Jesus was teaching among them and now stands up and calls them to believe in him, some of them were getting it. This is the prophet. This is the Messiah. And so it's likely that many from this group, maybe not all of them came to full faith, but at this moment they were recognizing him. And it's likely that many from this group later, within a year, became a part of the church in Jerusalem. You remember, within a year in Acts, we find that there are thousands of believers. 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost, and thousands were added later on. And that was just men, so including women and children, you know, uh, there was a point where it was up to 20,000 or better. And these people who were recognizing Jesus here were likely a part of those who became uh, a part of the church in Jerusalem. Within the year. But not all Jews received Jesus. It's good to see that not all Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. I mean, here is the remnant. Here's the remnant. Paul talked about the remnant in Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Not all the Jews have rejected the Messiah. There's a remnant according to his promise, he says. And Paul says, I'm one of them. And he quotes that passage from the Old Testament. You know, remember, Elijah was, was down in the dumps and depressed because he alone was the only one left believing in the Lord in Yahweh. Everybody was following the Baals. And God said, I've got 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal. So these, this is the remnant here. This is among those 7,000 that have not bowed their knee. These are the remnant Jews who ultimately believed in Jesus as the messiah and as their savior but notice we're not even out of the sentence in verse 41 when we find those who have uh, jews who have a contrary opinion verse 41 in the last part but some said is the christ to come from galilee so some believed that he was the prophet some the messiah but others were saying does the Christ come from Galilee? The expected answer to that question was no, right? And then he said in verse 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And they were right on. We we looked uh, up above here, there was some folks that believed that they didn't even know where the Messiah would come from. That was part of a group that was around during that time but here this group was pretty well informed with scripture they knew that the christ was to be born in bethlehem and that he was to be a descendant of david but here they were sowing seeds of doubt because jesus in their mind was from nazareth this is the opposition These people were were rejecting Jesus out of ignorance. And we can tell it's out of ignorance because we know, most Christians know, if you've read the Gospels at all, you know where Jesus was born. He was born in Bethlehem. And you know, based upon the genealogies of Matthew and the genealogies of Luke, you know that both parents, Mary and Joseph, no matter which way you calculate it, both of them were from the lineage and the bloodline of King David. but these people were calling it into question, right? They were rejecting Jesus out of ignorance. Now, some of it may be willful ignorance, but it's out of ignorance, and that's not uncommon in the world, is it people rejecting Christ out of ignorance. They were ignorant of the facts. And rather than trying to search for the facts or to research it a little more they did not hesitate to sow the seeds of doubt into the crowd they were rejecting Christ when they said is the Christ to come from Galilee in essence they were saying to the rest of the people who are believing are you out of your mind this guy comes from Nazareth it's, it's the implication remember Nathaniel in chapter one can anything good come out of Nazareth That's that's the idea. That was what was behind this crowd. How can the Messiah come from Nazareth? And so they were mocking those people who were believing in him. They were mocking them with lies. They were mocking them out of their own ignorance. Now, it reminds me again um, of something I heard this last week from Joe Rogan. I don't mean to to pick on him all the time. He has a lot of good things to say, and the reason I bring this up is because he has millions of followers, and there's some great things that he says, and I, I, I agree with some of his positions. I just wouldn't, I wish he wasn't cursed so much, but, uh, but he has come out and, uh, and showed his opposition to Christianity and to God. And normally, if he had a 1,000 followers, we wouldn't pay any attention to him. But because he's leading so many people astray in this particular area, we need sometimes to respond to what he's saying. Now, I'm sure he's a a nice guy. I'm sure he's a cool guy to hang out with. But in this case, he's very wrong. His argument can be reduced, the argument that I heard, and I think it was... uh, in the context of interviewing Richard Dawkins. And Rogan's argument basically comes down to this. i just boil it down to a nutshell. This is his argument. The God of the Bible can't be real because there are so many other religions in the world. Have you ever heard people argue that way? There's so many... He, he focus on the fact when he was five years old that's when he found out that other people there were other religions and it blew his mind as a five-year-old and it put doubt in his mind it it can't be real because there's so many other different religions and so the god of the bible can't be real because there's so many other religions so there can't be one god that's and and this is another tactic he took with dawkins remember the, the the argument is that dawkins Tells Christians, I just believe in one less God than you do. Christians don't believe in the pantheon, the gods, Zeus, and all of this. And, and Dawkins says, I, I just don't believe in one, I believe in one less God than you. Since we believe in one God, he believes in no God. You see how that, see how that works. And, and so he, he, he basically argues, and Dawkins as well, there can't be one God because other religions teach that there are many gods. You see, they kind of just muddy the water. So he argues that since there are so many different opinions about God, then the smartest thing anyone can do is just not believe in any God at all. That's kind of the argument he's making. This sounds, sounds really smart, and I guess to millions of people, it's like, oh, yeah, and no, they'll probably are arguing all the same way he's been arguing over the last few weeks concerning God and Christianity. But think about this. Let me rephrase this and see if this sounds right to you. This is basically what he's saying. The truth can't be the truth because there are so many lies in the world. That's the way he's arguing. The truth can't be the truth because there are so many lies in the world. And when you put it that way, you see the absurdity of his argument. But it sounds so intellectual and so good when it's coming from Rogan to millions of people. And that r- really what the way he's arguing is so postmodern. It's, it's a postmodern way to argue. And, um, and the idea is since everyone claims to have the truth and all those truths that people claim to have contradict one another, it means that there can be no objective truth. That's postmodernism. And that's the way he's arguing. He's slipping it in there. I don't think people s- realize what he's doing, but it's he's slipping it in there. Th- he's really coming to the conclusion there is no truth. There, I- there is no objective truth. I, w- I would entertain the idea. I would say to Joe, Joe, how about this? Some people are just wrong. <laughs> and their decisions are based on their own ignorance. I know uh, that... Uh, doug wilson was responding to some of rogan's and and wilson a a couple times said joe just read a book (laughs) just read a book i think it was ironside one uh, theologian said that he runs across people who claim to be atheists and unbelievers none of them have read any books on the evidence of the resurrection or the evidence of christ none of them have read any books about it they've never explored it they just made their mind up without any of the facts And that's what was going on here. I think Rogan rejects Christ and the God of the Bible out of ignorance. He's a smart guy. It's not that he's stupid, but out of ignorance. He does not know the kinds of evidence, the kinds of things that are out there, and and and, and he doesn't understand. I, he assumes that the God of the Bible has not spoken. It's like Francis Schaeffer wrote a book one, one time. He said, That he is there, speaking of God, he is there and he is not silent. I'm amazed at how many people think that that maybe there is a God, but none of us can know who this God is. Well, What if this God has revealed himself in a book? Just just what if? What if he's not silent? What if he has revealed himself? Then we don't have to grope in the dark. We know exactly who he is. And if we know who he is, we know who we are. Creatures made in the image of God that have rebelled against him. See, but all of that is thrown out in the window, and I think many people are making their decisions about Christ and about the Scripture and about the Bible on ignorance, on their ignorance. And that's like the people in our text here. They thought it was a brilliant argument. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? It's asking in such a way, again, to expect a, a, a no answer. And they did not have a clue that Jesus was not from Galilee. If you want to know his origin, where he was born, he was born in Bethlehem, just like they knew the Messiah should be. And again, they weren't totally ignorant because they quoted the Scripture. Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Isn't he supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Isn't he supposed to be a descendant from King David? This can't be the guy. He's from Nazareth. They knew the prophecies. They weren't ignorant about the fact that Jesus, or they were ignorant about the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that he was a descendant of David. But it sounded really smart, and this is the way they were arguing and trying to persuade people not to believe in him because of this lie. It was a false argument. And the problem is, if the people bothered to do a little research. Right there in the temple, they kept the genealogies. I, I think I mentioned this. I, you, you can't convince me that the Jewish rulers did not look it up. They had all the records right there, and yet they chose to keep it silent. Wouldn't that be a very important bit of information for the people to know? Hey, wait a minute, he was born in Bethlehem, and he's a descendant of King David? That would have been an important information to know, and yet the rulers were keeping that silent. However, probably the people, if they were curious about it, could have looked it up themselves. Or how about this? Jesus just called them to come to him. How about go over to Jesus and ask him where he was born? Or ask him to explain, well, the Messiah is supposed to be from Bethlehem. Why are you from Nazareth? And then Jesus could say, Actually, I was born in Bethlehem, right? And here are the records. You can go look it up, right? So they did not want to be confused with the facts. They had made their mind up. And really, when people are like that, when they make their mind up, any old argument will do. Any argument will do, even if it's wrong. And even if it's a bad argument like we're seeing Rogan use. It's bad, it's bad, it's a bad argument. But any argument will do if you've already made your mind up. Now John sums up the situation in verse 34, I mean 43. It says, so there was division among the people over him. Jesus brought division among the people. The Prince of Peace brought division among the people over him. Some believed and some rejected him. And that division is still continuing to this day. Verse 44 says, Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him, which brings us back, does it not, to the temple police. You remember we were talking about them many verses above there. They sent the temple police out to arrest Jesus. Now here is several days afterwards. So they've been sent out to arrest Jesus they weren't seen from for several days. And in verse 45 and 46, it says, The officer then, officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? <laughs> Good question. They just came in without him. Where is he? Why didn't you bring him? And their answer was, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. Now, in verse 32 of John, that's when, that's when they sent them out, and these temple police were not a bunch of pansies. I mean, they would have been very strong men, and they would have been, uh, they quickly put down any problems or any issues in the temple. But a few days had gone by, and they came back empty, and their response was, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, you've got to hand it to them. They didn't come back and say, well, we didn't really have an opportunity. Or, or they, they said, or, or we were afraid that if we arrested him, the crowd would, would cause a riot. I mean, they could have made something up that sounded pretty good, but at least they were absolutely honest with them. They said, basically, they told the teachers of Israel, this is the best teacher we've ever heard. <laughs> That's what they heard. This is the best teacher we've ever heard. And listen, they were from the temple police, so they heard all the teaching. They heard it for years. And they said, this, no one has ever spoken like this man. No one has ever taught like this man does. And the point here is that they were far more afraid of Jesus than they were of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. (laughs) They were afraid. As Spurgeon said about this, while the constables who had mingled with the throng were waiting for an opportunity of arresting the Lord Jesus, they themselves were arrested by his earnest eloquence. They could not take him for he had fairly taken them. And so they came back empty handed. You now, when they said that, the Pharisees started belittling them, berating them. Have you also been deceived then? Are you like this, these people? Uh, and, then, and then they said to them, This is classic. We need to be aware of this, this move. They said, Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? That's their argument. Their argument is, this can't be the Christ. Has any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? And this is what is called, and when I read that, it's immediately understood what they were doing. Th- this is what is called an appeal to authority. And an appeal to authority is a logical fallacy. It's a logical fallacy. Um, it's very common today, but it's not, it, it's, it doesn't follow, it's not an argument this appeal to authority we hear it every day in the headlines how about this if the CDC says it it's got to be true if Dr. Fauci says it it has to be true if the mainstream media says it it has to be true those are all appeals to authority and you know what it's not it's not an argument and it's not evidence It's an appeal to get in line, and that's what they were doing to these officers. Hey, have any of the religious leaders, have any of the Pharisees believed in Jesus? Therefore, he's not really the Messiah because the authorities don't believe. The authorities would tell you, you just have to believe the authorities. So an appeal to authority is when a person or people, P, makes a claim, X, and the conclusion is, therefore, X is true. And in the case of the religious authorities here they make the claim that Jesus is not the Christ, therefore Jesus or Jesus is not the Christ or or they they make the claim the Pharisees don't believe, therefore he can't be the Christ because the Pharisees don't believe it. That's their argument now again, realize this that appealing to authority is not evidence, even if they quote say, science says, well, show me the evidence, because science doesn't say anything. Scientists say a lot, and scientists are not always truthful. And often they are very biased, especially when politics gets involved with it, right? But to appeal to authority, like science or the CDC, is not evidence. Show me the proof. Show me the evidence, And just like here with these officials, these police, they were told that Jesus can't be the Christ because the authorities don't believe it. The authorities will tell you what's true and what's false. That's the idea. And since people get by with this kind of, it's not even argumentation, this kind of logic today, we know now why they stopped teaching logic in, in critical thinking in our schools long ago. They stopped teaching that because if we don't use logic and critical thinking, we're so much easier to control, aren't we? Just do it because the authorities say to do it. So again, this was not an argument, just like the things you're hearing today is not an argument. There's no evidence. They're just appealing to authorities. And so the argument is that this guy can't be in the Messiah. None of the religious be- leaders believe in him. You guys must have been deceived by this guy. That's what they told him. And then they brought, uh, they made some disparaging remarks about the people. This is very interesting to me, right? Here are the religious leaders that are the shepherds of Israel. They're the ones who take care of the people. They're the ones who teach them. And who grow them up, right? Who should love and and serve them? But notice the way that they they talked about the people in verse forty nine. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You 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 officers are going along with the crowd. This crowd is accursed. They don't even they don't know the law. They don't know sikkim from come here. Isn't that interesting how these shepherds of Israel were talking about the people? If they're ignorant, it's their fault, right? They didn't teach them. They didn't realize that. But they looked down. They had all of their clothes that uh that they they used to, to gain respect. They prayed out in the in the corners to be seen by the people. Jesus was talking about them, right? They thought an awful lot about themselves and they thought very little about the people. And they use that, right? You're not following the crowd, are you? These people are infidels. They are cursed. They don't know anything. So rather than loving the people, they despise the people. They were the elite. This is a big problem among the elite, isn't it? Those who have power and influence come to find out that the people they're supposedly leading, they mean nothing to them. It's all about their power. It's all about their influence and their pride. never occurred to the Jewish leaders that the crowd might be right. They were too full of themselves, too full of pride to admit that they could be wrong. It's precisely this arrogance and pride that kept them out of the kingdom. And unfortunately, it's precisely this pride and arrogance that kept other people out of the kingdom, too, because they were the leaders. This is what I think uh, uh, Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Why is that? He says, But God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I can't help but think that maybe Paul had in mind some of the Pharisees that he knew that he was a Pharisee as well. They were boastful, they were prideful, and they were cut off from the kingdom because of that pride. And that doesn't mean and some people might turn this around. See what education will get you. <laughs> you know, see it's better not to be educated. This is not a, a, a an argument against Christian education or against Christian scholarship. We should not be anti-education. And I've seen this firsthand. And this is this is my view of this. We need Christian scholars. We need Christian thinkers. We need people who will write and think and advance these arguments in apologetics and in theology we need our scholars, but a scholar should always see himself or herself as a servant of the church, not as some uh, not as uh, having degrees or positions that lord it over the church. Scholars are servants and They should never use their education to look down on the people. That gift is given to bring the people along, to teach the people. And if the people are ignorant about things, it's the fault of the teachers. It's not the people's fault, right? And so Jesus here was causing division not only among the people. He was causing division among the temple police and the leaders But we also find that he was causing division among the Pharisees themselves. Um, The Jewish leaders were assuming that none of the Pharisees believed, but there was at least one here that was beginning to break ranks a little bit. We see that in verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, meaning one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he, he does? What was he doing? He was realizing that they were getting ready to railroad Jesus and just kill him, and so he's calling them out. He's saying, "You can't kill this man, arrest him and kill him if you haven't heard from him, if you hadn't talked to him, if you don't give him a fair trial." right? Now what did they say to him? They replied, "Are you from Galilee, too?" They turned on even one of their own. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee, <laughs> they said. So here we find Nicodemus again. He was the one, John points out, he's the one that came to Jesus by night, right? And what was he doing? He was trying to discover here for himself is, who, who is this man? And he was trying to understand that, something that none of the other Pharisees did. And and Nicodemus heard from Jesus' own lips that you must be born again. Nicodemus heard from Jesus that verse that just about everybody can quote. This was Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus was working through this he was trying to see if Jesus was really the Messiah or not and then he he noticed the arrogance and the pride of the Pharisees and so he's calling them out and they turn on him are you a Galilean too and he's being called out by them because he was not in lockstep with them he was not just going along with it he's starting to question them a little bit wait a minute you you just can't do this and so He's breaking ranks, and they're calling him out. And at this point, he may not have been a full Christ follower, but he does appear that he is getting very close. And later on, we'll see that he helped to bury Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea. And then again, I we mentioned this before, church history tells us that he actually became a believer. He was kicked out of the Sanhedrin, and he d- he and he died. He was very wealthy, and he died impoverished. He died without any money, kicked out of Jerusalem. But is he is he impoverished now? <laughs> no. He owns everything because Christ owns everything. But here we find him beginning to stand up for the truth. And so when you stand up for the truth, you will be divided from those who want to believe the lies. That's why Jesus always brings division. And this division is even being seen among the Pharisees. And The reason why I think many of the people in Jerusalem, many of the people of Israel rejected Jesus because it was because their leaders rejected Jesus. They will have much of the responsibility for Israel rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. This is what Jesus I think meant in Matthew chapter twenty three, verse thirty-seven. When Jesus said, "O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing." A lot of people look at that and say, "See, Jesus is calling everybody out to to come to him." But notice what he says here. It's very it's it's very important that we get what he's saying in here. He's saying to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, right? How often I would have gathered your children. What is he saying here? In essence, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. I want to gather your children, but you would not let them come to me. This is speaking against the religious leaders who are rejecting Christ and who are leading the people to reject him as well. The leaders were against Christ, and they were leading the people to be against Christ as well. So the Jewish leaders were much to blame for the rejection of Jesus. From this point on, when Jesus stood up and said, Come to me, this would have been the time for all of Israel to embrace Christ as their Messiah. Because the religious leaders were shutting it down, and many of the uninformed people in the crowd were shutting it down, this is the point where Israel begins to reject Jesus as their Messiah. And six months later, they would, as a people, crucify him, put him to death. That's why this moment, this moment was crucial and critical in the life of Israel and in the life of Christ and it, were, it was the religious leaders that were primarily to blame for the people rejecting Christ. And these leaders were ignorant, too. That's, that's, that's one of the things that happens to scholars. Once they are really focused in on one area and they're really good at one area, all of a sudden they think that they know everything. And that's not true. These people were ignorant as well. Here's the proof. What did they say? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Really? Well, if you read the Bible, if you understood the Bible, you'll know that Jonah came from Galilee. Nahum came from Galilee. And it's very possible that Elijah, the great prophet, came from Galilee. So they were arguing, does a prophet come from Galilee? Yes, prophets come from Galilee. They have in the past. So the problem was that these leaders were not only hardened, but they were hardened in their ignorance, and they were leading the people away from salvation. But Nicodemus was different. He didn't want to be a part of that. He went to Jesus seeking the truth, and he came away from that experience knowing that Jesus was real, and there was something different and special about him. And so Jesus was able to divide the Pharisees even. Now what's interesting is that later on in Acts 15, we see that there were many from the Pharisees who were part of the Jerusalem church. So that caught on. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and many others uh, led a group of the Pharisees, and they all became Christ followers unfortunately they started causing trouble in the church too but that's another story the, fr- the problem was that the pharisees were proud they were refused to seek the truth and that's what's keeping many people from christ in this world too proud don't want to really seek the truth and that's the reason why wherever you find jesus and wherever you find jesus preached and the truth being proclaimed you will find division it's getting a lot harder isn't it to be a christian 20 years ago you couldn't you usually wouldn't have the threat of losing your job and now there's a real possibility if you stand up for christ and the truth that you could lose your job that you you can be shunned from your group of friends and and people jesus is still bringing division in a very real way in this world and the fact is that liars will always hate the truth And darkness will always hate the light because it exposes them. So every day the world is being divided. And there are those who come to Christ. They believe in him. They find life and truth and freedom. And then there are those who reject Christ and they remain in darkness. They are in bondage and they are the walking dead. We need to be very clear that one day there will be a final division. And I close with this thought. In Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left... Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the last division coming, separation. One to eternal life and one to eternal Wrath. And that's really the question this morning, is it not? Which which side will you be on in that day? His right or his left? Among the sheep or the goats? And I hope and pray that you are trusting in Christ, that you have come to them. And if not, I hope that you hear the voice of our Savior this morning as he stands up and yells at the top of his lungs. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink.